Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter of James, Wisdom for Wholeness. Here, James uses Old Testament wisdom literature, as well as teaching from his own half-brother Jesus, to call the church throughout the age to a life wholly devoted to God. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life, so as to make people complete in him. It was difficult to know uh, where we should start our reading this morning. Um, we're always trying to see the passage while we look at the entire context together. But as we get further and further along, our context grows and grows and grows. And this is actually part of my very sneaky master plan to uh, do less and less work on my sermons and just read more and more. Uh, by the end of James, we'll be reading almost the whole book every week. It will be great. <laughs> Truthfully, that would be a wonderful way to spend our time, wouldn't it? To be reading God's Word, to hear it spoken to us. Um, but it does disregard one of the gifts that God has given to His church, that of pastors exposing the text, exalting in our Savior, and equipping the saints for the work of the ministry. So, for the sake of understanding verses 19 through 21 in context, I've chosen for us to begin at verse 16 in our reading. Uh, this is not an arbitrary choice. In fact, if we don't start here and carry the context of verses 16 through 18 into 19 through 21, I think we're going to miss something. And you'll see how that kind of unfolds as we work together through this. Uh, notice that there are some strong parallels. So I want you to get your Bibles out and look here together. I want you to look there at 16 to 18 and then 19 to 21. Remember that one of the things that we are doing as pastors is teaching regular things. I'm teaching you content, but I'm also teaching you how to read and examine your Bible. So you can look through it and you can draw these exact same conclusions. I want you to do that. So I want you to take a look so that you can see these observations, these structures that he uses for your own good as you work through the text as well. Uh, so let's take a look. Start here. Uh, it, if you look at 16 and 18, and 19 and 21, they both begin with a strong imperative. Go ahead and take a look. My beloved is added onto that. It goes with a strong imperative, then my beloved brothers. You'll see it from the beginning. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, in 16. And then in 19, know this, my beloved brothers. Then they both kick things off with the word every. If you notice that, every good gift in verse 16. And then in 19, let every person be. We're starting to develop a pattern almost that these are kind of looking like each other. The content is different, but we're seeing stuff that's lining up. Further, both passages end with a, the discussion about the word in the context of salvation. Plus, he links the two paragraphs together using the word word. Both the context of salvation, but also the use of the word again from 18 then to 21. And if you look down on your scriptures, you'll see also in 22 and 23, he's going to go even further into this discussion on the word. All that to say... I think it's helpful for us to start in verse 16 as we start to see 16 through 18 as it parallels to 19 through 21. So let's start with verse 16, then we'll pray. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, 
which is able to save your souls. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, we come asking you to show us yourself. God, we thank you for your word. What a privilege to have a full copy of your word. Most of us have several of them. Leather bound, hard bound, it doesn't matter, on our phones. And God, it is your word of truth to us. And yet our neglect of it is abysmal. This is not about shaming. This is just about seeing who you are. So we do not come here to beat each other over the head, but rather focus on what you have given to us. And we ask that you would show us Christ, that we would look into your word and it would change us, that we would hear it, that we would receive it with gladness, and that you would show us who you are. So we ask this morning that you would open the word to us, that your word would be sweet to us that Jesus would be the pearl of great price for which we were willing to give up all. God, you only can do this work in us, so we rely on you, trust you, ask you as your children to do this work in us. We need faith, we need wisdom. Do these things in us as we look through the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start out uh, explaining a little bit what we're gonna do today. <clears throat> We need to go through this text. We need to see what it's talking about. But then I'm going to come back. We did this a few weeks ago. I'm going to come back and try to fit it into our context. How does this match up with what's going on around it? At the end of this time, we'll come back, finish out that text, and then we'll draw some applications for us. Same thing we did last week. As we look, we realize that James's message is not just to the 12 tribes in dispersion back then, but it is also to Cornerstone today. And so for us to make this application. So we finished our first major section of James. We started in verse 1 all the way down through 18. Our author will start working through other important topics as he progresses through the letter. All the while he's weaving in and out these three major themes we talked about. Steadfastness, wisdom, and this idea of partiality or favoritism. Last week we looked at a major discussion on temptation and who is really to blame for temptation. God was not to be blamed, but rather we were schooled in the deceitfulnesses of our own heart. We found out that it is our own desire that is to blame for changing God-given trials into temptations to sin. We were the ones to blame for this. At the end of verse 16 through 18, we realize who we can blame God for, what we're allowed to blame him for, all good and perfect gifts coming down from the Father of lights who is unchanging, who redeemed us by the word of the truth, the gospel. And James now begins to expand and talk about the reception of this word that he just mentioned in verse 18. If you can for a moment, I want you to pull yourself back and think about those three major themes and think about 19 through 27. So if you look at this, it's, he's had 1 through 18 as one major section. The next one that we're entering into is 19 through 27. The reason this is important He's not going to say the word that I'm going to say right here, but you'll start to see it. He is delivering to us, as his audience, wisdom. He is delivering the word of truth. He is delivering all these different things to show us and give us perspective on our life. In these next verses, these next nine verses, you're not going to see the word wisdom, but that's certainly what he is doing. Today, like I said, we'll work through 19 through 21 to understand how and why we are to receive wisdom 
And in the following weeks, James will show us then what we are to do with this wisdom. So, if you have your Bible, let's look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Right off the bat, the construction should alert you. You're like, oh, I know this. I've seen this before. We saw this thing in the last, in verse 16. We saw the big imperative command with my beloved brothers together. We noted that he does this for emphasis. He only does it three times in the entire book, although he mentions brothers 20 different times. And so he's bringing this in as an inclusion, making sure we understand what's going on. This big imperative, my beloved brothers, for emphasis, it grabs our attention and moves us off into a new topic in our letter. My beloved brothers, know this. Believe this. This is truth. Internalize what I'm about to tell you. Listen up. Every one of you should be quick to hear. Okay, hear what? Every one of you should be slow to speak. Okay, like in what context? Every one of you should be slow to anger. Ah, with the three together. Okay, I see where you're going with this. I know what this, this is. This is a proverb. This is proverbial teaching here. I've heard this before. I know a good bit of the Old Testament wisdom literature, and I know that you are talking about timeless principles of a wise man. I'm going to show you four passages on our screen here. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Now let's look at Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs eleven twelve. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. He rounds us out in Proverbs seventeen twenty seven. A man of knowledge uses words with restraint, and a man of understanding is even tempered. Or the ESV does a nice job when it says he has a cool spirit. It's helpful for us understanding this even tempered idea. This is clear, practical teaching on Christian community, how they ought to interact, how we ought to interact with each other. We'll find other occasions throughout the letter that James addresses his hearers about very specific issues of the tongue. He talks about quarreling. He talks about fiery speech. And he talks about that which stains the entire body. This is the characterization sometimes of our speech to one another. Here James reminds us that we are first to hear and wait, then to speak and to wait then to be angry if it's appropriate. James is giving us wisdom. This is a truth from the book of Proverbs given in a modern context. And it's right. He's telling us the truth here. Don't do what, I'm sorry, we do well to hear what James's call is and to heed it for this practical wisdom. Don't be a fool. Be a good hearer. Be one who is quick to listen to another Someone else, and instead of reading the situation and quickly jumping into it to your own defense or providing them the solution that they need, instead, let us be quick to hear. Be those who are listeners. However, I, I, there's more to this section than just interpersonal relationships. It certainly is about that. Uh, I want to make sure that we make a note here and that we will come back to this to talk in a little bit it's very important for us to realize that James is not influenced only by Proverbs or the Old Testament. James, uh, Jordan actually said it earlier, remembering that James is working from the Old Testament, 
but that he's also a convert of Jesus Christ, believing that he was the Messiah. And so he is also working out the best revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ and the best revealer or commentator on all of the Old Testament. So when James looks at these things and thinks about these things, he is doing so through the lens of Jesus. Why is this important? I'd like for you to consider one of the things that Jesus says over and over and over again. You'll remember this little phrase if you went through Mark with us. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. In his earthly ministry, we saw him use this phrase in Matthew eleven fifteen, Matthew thirteen nine, Matthew thirteen forty three, Mark four nine, Mark four twenty three, Luke eight, and Luke fourteen thirty five. In his earthly ministry, he is making sure this is proclaimed after he is talking and preaching. This little phrase comes most often after the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God or an explanation of gospel living. It comes on the heels of the word being preached. I make mention of this because I believe that James is doing more than just using a proverb to address his readers about straightforward commands on Christian living. He certainly is doing that. Be a good listener. Don't be angry. Those are important things. But I think he's also doing something larger, something that that spans bigger. I think he is alluding to hearing the word of truth. He does so by bringing this up, this idea of quick to hear. Right in the context of verse 18, we were just there. So we, we just went to that, and we see it. It seems to fit well if that's talking about the word of truth. It would make sense if he's talking about hear this. But he's using some proverbial statement to do that. And thus, he is using it in a double fashion. And he's allowed to do that. He helps us understand that this is true, but also helps us in our argument. We'll come back to it. So, you take this time to listen, so quick to hear, and only then should we speak. Be slow to speak. This doesn't mean speak slowly. Rather, we should be approaching our conversations and our speech with care. Slow to speak. A wise man should never speak the first thing that pops into his head without thinking first and carefully speaking what he knows to be true and in a loving manner. If you know Ephesians, you remember that Paul talks about this in Ephesians 4. He said that we ought to be ones that are speaking the truth in love. Be slow to speak, and when you do, it should be the truth, and it should be done in love. Then, then we get to anger, though. Okay, so we got quick to, quick to hear, slow to speak. Now we get to anger. Something that we can't see in English should be noted here. I just want to help us for a moment. In the first two statements, he uses a specific construction. This is nerdy grammar stuff, but hang with me because it's important. All right? So he uses this, this construction. He uses the word quick plus an infinitive. So it's quick to hear. And then he uses the word slow with another infinitive, to speak. The idea here, you should be quick to the action of hearing and slow to the action of speaking. But then he changes the construction. What we're expecting is him to say, and slow plus infinitive, right? Slow to be angry. It's not what he does. He changes our construction completely on purpose. Rather, what he says is slow plus the word to plus a noun, anger. In other words, you ought to be slow to the topic or the reality of anger. This ought to slow us down, both as we hear him say slow, but also in the fact that he is changing our construction to say, what's that about? 
We know how we most often will do this. We'll see this and jump right to a conclusion. But there's a difference here. This isn't just don't be angry. That's certainly true. We already know that to be true from Proverbs. But we, we ought to approach the act of being care, you know, careful about anger. But I would argue that what James is doing is purposefully instructing us to be careful in our approach to anger overall. Because he wants, us to, tell, he wants to tell us more than just don't be angry, guys. We already know ourselves. If you know anything about anger, you know how you react. The things that that means for you when you think of anger in your own life. We're inclined to fits of anger. <laughs> Emotional responses that don't take the whole situation into consideration. Or anger that has been brewing inside of us and really needs to vent somehow. Ungodly anger that hurts everyone who's involved. It destroys relationships, pushes people apart, it erodes trust, and it doesn't actually help you at all. It doesn't make you any better. It may feel like it for a moment, and it kind of feels like you've been justified and how you've worked rightness in the situation and told them what is actually going on. You have been able to tell them what is good and right. But in reality, we know ungodly anger doesn't help the other person at all. That doesn't help you either. James is going to talk further about this top topic. He wants you, again, to slow down with the way he constructed this, but he wants you and I to understand that anger should be avoided because of what it does not do. That's a strange thing for us to consider, but we already know what it does. We know that what, it, what it can do to us and to others, but James leads us to consider his purpose for the entire book as he slows us down and tells us what it cannot produce. He wants us to think about our pursuit of completion, about being perfect, about teleos. He is trying to push us then to Christian wholeness, maturity, holiness. Look at verse 20. For, or because, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. The anger that characterizes us produces bitterness, self-righteousness, pain, and often guilt. And it doesn't produce holiness, right living, Christian character, or maturity. When man uses anger, it does not produce behavior that is consistent with God's righteous demands. The anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Some of you are saying, okay, I see what you did there. You just gave us a definition for the righteousness of God. You just defined it. You are saying that the righteousness of God in this verse is godly Christian character and living that pleases God. Yes, I am. That is what I'm saying. Now, it's on me, though, to prove it to you because you may know the phrase, the righteousness of God. Paul uses it several times throughout his, his, his writing. It's also used in other places throughout the Scriptures. Like any part of Scripture, though, that has not undoubtedly clear, if we have several different ways to understand it, we've got to examine our context and make sure it makes sense here. So let me give you three ways that righteousness of God is commonly and should be the way that we interpret it and we need to pick this and figure out which one is the best for our context. First one, the righteousness of God could be a phrase that describes the results of one who has believed the gospel. For one is, who is saved, they are now right with God. Either they're themselves or one whom they are angry with. That anger then is producing a right standing with God, the righteousness of God. It can be used that way. Is that right for our context? We'll look at it in a minute. Number two, it could also be a phrase that means that the one who is angry is exacting justice or righteousness of God on another person. 
like we are setting them straight, like we talked about, through our anger. Like somehow that is actually making them right with God. Righteousness of God, his, his holiness and his righteousness and his justice is now being satisfied as you are angry to another person. That's another option. Or number three, righteousness of God could be a reference to righteous character and living before God and his righteous demands. Our first concept would mean that James's audience was possibly thinking that their anger could help in evangelism, either of their own salvation or others. But this doesn't really seem to fit our context at all. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And so that this anger could accomplish evangelism seems weird, and that that would be what they're struggling with. And so I, I think it's not helpful for us to see it this way. And the way Paul uses it over and over again, it doesn't make sense for our context. The second concept would mean that James' audience is thinking that their anger helps dole out God's wrath against sin, or that they are involved in upholding God's righteous judgment somehow. Again, I don't know that this makes sense of our context. They certainly may have thought that they were right. I, I almost guarantee they never think that that would work righteousness of God, though. That brings us to the third option, which I believe fits very well for our context. It is set up just like the statement back in verse 3. Grab your Bible. I want you to look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now let me read verse 20. Listen. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Very similar in the way that he sets these sentences up. And whatever the righteousness of God is, we know that James is applying it to the one who is involved in the anger of man in this verse here. In other words, let me simplify it. I'll, I'm going to read the verse and add a little section at the end to help clarify why he's doing this. He says this, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God in that man, in the one who is the anger of man is being exemplified. We already know that James is aiming at wholeness, perfection, godly character, and single-mindedness. And a single-minded man lives according to God's righteous demands. James warns us that when a person employs anger, he does not get righteous living on the other side. It doesn't produce righteousness, doesn't produce steadfastness, doesn't produce completion or joy. And so it ought to be avoided. We ought to be then slow to anger because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So we've looked at verse 19 and 20. We've talked about it. It's thoroughly practical for us. It's very under, helpful for us to understand how this does our regular day-to-day -day stuff with our spouses, our kids, our neighbors, our bosses, etc. But we haven't talked about the context yet. I want you to work with me for a moment to see how James is using this proverbial saying. We just showed it from Proverbs and other places throughout the, the Old New Testament. But we want to see this and see why he's using this in the larger argument. How is this connecting to verse 16 through 18? The temptation is for us to see, right, as we read James, is to see that it's kind of haphazardly a collection of many good sayings and proverbs and exhortations for us to listen to. But I think this short changes our author. I, I think James is a little bit smarter than that. And I think he's actually weaving together these arguments on purpose. And he's not just plopping down in the middle of here this statement about being a good hearer and not being angry. That being said, I think it's on me to show you my best, to my best ability what's going on. So here's our issue. 
how or what do verses 19 through 20 have to do with the previous context? That's the question for us. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, anger of man not producing the righteousness of God. What does this stuff have to do with the Father of lights and him bringing us forth by the word of truth and him making us then a kind of first fruits? How does verse 16 through 18 fit with 19 through 20? When we look at 16 through 18, we see that they are clearly about God and his character and what kind of things God does, being a perfect gift giver. I would like to propose to us, if you look at 19 through 21, it is set up in parallel so that we would see that we are supposed to be this way as his children, his first fruits. In other words, verse 16 through 18, this is what God is like. Now, 19 through 21, this is what you are supposed to be like. We already saw as we began today, these two sections are in parallel. Much of the language is the same. He's setting them up so that we're looking at them right next to each other. And we're drawing these things out of and saying, okay, he did that on purpose. If that's true, we better pay attention to the commands that he has given as one unit. It's not okay to separate 20 from 21. Uh, it's, it's, it's the temptation, but that's not okay. Again, it's part of that construction that he's putting together. It begins with a therefore. Again, you don't just start that out of nowhere. Either that's reaching back to the entire context, or he's reaching back to those previous couple verses. I would say it's the latter. Look at verse 21. What he's trying to do is lead them into his final point in this section, or a continuing thought. Verse 21 says this, Therefore, put away all filthiness, and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. James has begun his description of what a believer is supposed to look like by warning against anger and reactive speech, things that we should not do. Further, he's explained that anger will not produce the righteousness of God. Now, he turns to show us what it should do, what should be going on in our life, what we should be doing. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. The idea here is one taking off old, dirty clothing, literally like undoing a shirt and taking it off and throwing it into the laundry basket. James commands us to take off every impure thing, everything that is our abundant evil is how he says it. We are to be taking off those things which are not consistent with the character of God. We just saw back in the section on, on uh, temptation that God is not tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man to evil. It's not a part of him. And so as James looks at this, he tells us, anything not pure, anything that is evil, take it off. Put it off. Truth is, this is actually pretty intuitive. We know what is anti-God. The scriptures are chock full of it. You know the things that are like that. And what we are to do is get rid of them, everything that is impure. Take off or put it away for you or shed it like a cat hair infested bathrobe. Yeah, you got that, right? It's disgusting. I wish that we would somehow react similarly to understanding when we are clothed in our unrighteous deeds those things which are fly in the face of God as disgusting, that are evil. Probably some of you now at this point are remembering what Jordan read to us from Colossians 3. I'm going to show you Ephesians 4 and show you a similar thing happening. 
you know the put off, put on construction. You know that that happens, right? So let me read. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, since we know the context here, we understand what's coming next, let's look at it. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. Not what we're expecting. He says, put off. We're waiting for the put on statement, right? So since that should be coming, what is he doing? What's all this receiving business about? I thought it was going to be put off, put on. Why are we to be receiving as the opposite command here of to put off? James knows the sinfulness of a heart trying to look like they are doing the right thing. Even a genuine heart that wants to do the right thing. He knows that you and I hear the command to be whole, to be holy, to be like God, to be mature. We talk about our insides matching our outsides, and we begin to take account of how our outsides begin to look. We want them to match the inside. We do want that to be true. We start figuring out how we need to put the certain behaviors in place so that we're not hypocrites. We want our inside to match our outside, right? That's a good thing. And the put-off, put-on principle is correct. Paul didn't use a bad principle. But James is getting to something that's deeper than that. At this point, James tells us how to make sure that we are truly single-minded, that we're truly whole, that we're truly mature in Jesus Christ. It is only done by receiving the implanted word. That should hit us as strange, like we just talked about. How is that so much different than putting on these things? James is not all about putting on outward works, although many people will tell you that that's true about the book of James. It's not. Look how he does it here. I mean, it's a stark contrast where you're supposed to be thinking he's going to put these things on, these outward things. We should be looking a certain way as Christians. Instead, he says a different command to receive the implanted word. His whole point is to receive this word instead of putting it on. Yes, he is all about life that is lived out in a consistent working evidence that displays what is going on in your heart. He wants that to be true, but he's not interested in getting there by pursuing outward works. That's not how you get there. You get there by receiving the implanted word, which is able to save your souls, exclamation point. There is no other way to have true outward change. It's not going to be real. It's going to be like the fruit if it was on a tree where you would pluck it, and instead of it being what you thought it was, it's a wax apple. It's fake. It's not real. And it will never be able to grow out of that unless there is, an, there is a receiving of the implanted word. That's why he demands that the first commandment comes first. You've heard this from me before. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. That's the first command. Only then can we do the second command, to love our neighbor as ourself. We cannot produce that true fruit without it actually happening inside of us. It's impossible. The question is, so how do I receive this implanted word then? Look at verse 21 again. Receive, excuse me, and receive with meekness the implanted word. This is not just a nice way of rounding things out. It's not like a nice, cute word uh, to add color to the sentence. This is very much on purpose. 
There is only one way to approach a holy God for what we need. We can only approach him as what we really are. One who is spiritually bankrupt. One who is lowly. One who is, as the rest of the New Testament often describes, meek. He is using this word to receive the implanted word with meekness to help us understand our state of affairs. You and I have nothing to bring to God except our own sinfulness, our own lives stained with all of our choices to rebel against the holy and righteous God. We can only sit as beggars then, waiting to receive that which God alone is able to plant in us. It is the word of truth, the gospel that we spoke of in verse 18. It is the implanted word that only can be given and take root by God's gracious action in a sinner's life. Remember the end of verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth. It is the truth that Jesus Christ, the righteous, has substituted himself for us, believers. And in his atoning work on the cross, you and I now have reconciliation to the Father through faith in Jesus Christ. Further, you now have a life that is to be dominated by walking with Jesus. A communion with the Holy Trinity as we submit to Jesus Christ living in us and through us. Receiving the implanted word is believing the gospel and all of its ramifications for us. The main thrust of this verse, verse is not to put off. In the original language, the put off command is in a participle. It's not the main command here. Actually, the main command here is to receive. This is our primary importance, to receive the implanted word. This is one of the reasons why we're here today, that you would hear the implanted word, that you would hear the gospel proclaimed. Next week, we'll see that the hearing and receiving will bring fruit. It will end in doing. But for today, for now, it's enough for us to see that the power of the implanted word is great and the importance of us being quick to hear and to receive this implanted word. I said that we'd return this idea of hearing in these verses before. James uses this practical wisdom concerning speech and anger in a double way. It is certainly good Christian advice to the church and what they're to do in communion, how they're to interact with each other. But it also highlights the importance of being quick to hear the word of truth that we just talked about. The word should not be only heard, but as verse 21 tells us, it's to be received with meekness. So, we've heard and preached the entire text. The question we should all be asking, and we should be asking each other, what will you do with it? I'm going to give you three applications. We talked about some of these last week uh, for that context, but I'm going to do th three things. I want to talk about angry speech. I want to talk about hearing the word. I want to talk about receiving the word. Uh, some of your homes are dominated by anger. Uh, an ungodly communication. And I don't just mean like cussing. I mean the fact that you won't even listen to each other properly. Some of you already know this. You know the answer before the other person even finishes their statement and you're ready to defend or offer them a solution and you won't listen to them. Some of you are so proud that you won't even let me finish my statement right now because you're thinking about an answer of how to rebuttal and how to defend yourself. That's wicked. <laughs> Just let you know, that's wicked. Some of you are so proud, again, that that's your first recoil. Some of you are loud, angry people. Some of you are quiet, angry people. 
Uh, both are wrong, both are sinful, and both hurt others. And don't think, just because you aren't a yeller, that you're off the hook. Uh, that's partly why James didn't end with slow to speak. It goes on to anger. Anger often comes out of a heart that does not love others. And this doesn't always end in screaming. It may end in a very, very cold anger, a silent treatment, a time to not talk. But everything is commuted, communi- communicated through everything else that we do. This is still selfish. This is still sinful. And you ought to stop it. It doesn't produce the righteousness of God. And so, repent. Confess these things to the Lord and repent, asking Him to change you, to practice love for one another, being willing to hear and love each other, not in anger, but in love toward another, where it puts someone else in front of you. Repent and practice this way. Hearing the Word. Are you putting yourself in a position to hear the Word regularly. I realize that our text specifically is talking about the gospel, but this gospel is only found in the revealed word of God, the Bible. When you come to church worship services, are you jumping past thinking about what you're going to have for lunch? Don't worry, I do that once in a while too. But what are you doing in this time here? Are you even coming on a regular basis? Is this important enough to you that you want to hear the word in your life over and over and over again? Does it make sense then? Do you ever listen to this and say, I need to hear this. I need to put myself in the right place. That's hearing. Do you put yourself in front of good Bible teaching? In our context, core seminar, Bible studies. Do you do that? That's hearing. That's hearing the word. Do you put yourself in front of this or do you put yourself in front of other conversations with others that may lend themselves to true gospel interactions where they're teaching you just by what they're experiencing through their own reading in the Word. Which leads me to another thing. Do you read your Bible? That's like so simple, I get it, but do you read your Bible? Believing that it is for you, that it is fresh, that it is new each time for your good and the glory of God? That's hearing. Do you listen Let's say, and this is going to be a sensitive one, <laughs> what's your music like? What's coming through your headphones on a regular basis? What's your podcast that you're listening to? What type of artists are you listening to? This is not a prohibition against all those things. I'm asking you if you ever listen to God-centered, Christ-centered music that renews your mind, that speaks the truth of the gospel to you. There's so much good Christ-centered music out there, it would do you well to get some on your phone or whatever you listen to it through. That's hearing. We must put ourselves in the position to hear the Word of God. Preaching, reading, conversations, godly music. Be quick to hear. Lastly, the implanted Word. Receiving it. Maybe the listening or the, the hearing part isn't a struggle for you. Maybe you're good at getting here on time, faithful at listening to sermons, in the right place, you have things going on in the background, your Christian music, but you really don't receive it. You really don't allow it to come into your inner being as though it is actually true. You don't care if the truth of Jesus Christ goes much further than getting in, you into heaven and making sure you keep up that insurance policy. 
you and I need to receive the implanted word. We need to believe that it's true, that it is life-giving and fresh and written for your 2018 life. It's not just some crummy old ancient history. It is speaking to us. And we are to receive this gospel, the word of truth from God. You need to humble yourself, putting away your selfish lifestyle, and realize that you are spiritually bankrupt. You need to come to him as a beggar in need of everything. This message is for believers. This is what we call each other to. But as a quick note, this is also for those who have come in today wondering, who is this Jesus? Friend, if you don't know and you're wondering what I'm talking about, you too can receive the implanted word. If this is something that you have questions about, talk to someone. What we want to do on a weekly basis, on a daily basis, is proclaim Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to know the Father. That is the only Thank way. Thank you for listening to this so, podcast. So talk to someone who you know for that comes to Cornerstone regularly. Talk to one of us as elders. Further information on Cornerstone we Bible want Church, you to know more than anything else Jesus Christ Virginia. and find Him com. to be glorious and treasure Him. It is life. Brothers, let us obey Him who has brought us forth by the word of truth. Let us worship him today, tomorrow, and the next as the one who is in control of all things and the one who is truly able to save our soul. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We rely on it as our sole foundation for knowing you. You teach us through it. It is truth to us. It is life to us. And we ask that you would help us to obey. God, I pray that you would bless our people as they go today, this covenant community here, Cornerstone, and those who have joined us together or not members. I pray that you would bless them as they walk out these doors, knowing that what they need to do is receive the implanted word as truth that would change their lives. We praise you, glorious Father, Jesus and Holy Spirit, in your name, amen.